The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So I'd like to ask that you take your Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 8 if they're not already open. We're going to be walking through this chapter, a very sober chapter that you heard just read for us by Tom. The wrath of God outpoured on the earth is one of the most terrifying and unsettling aspects of God's character. The overpowering aspect of it, the sheer scope, the magnitude, and the destruction that flows out from the sovereign actions of God here are deeply disturbing to our mindset. Even if we've been Christians for a long time, this is so. As we begin to see these seven trumpet blasts from heaven and see the devastating effects on planet earth of these judgments. It's not unusual for even the most mature Christians to shrink back in some sense, to recoil with horror and perhaps cry out as Moses did in Exodus 32, 12, turn from your fierce anger, O Lord. However, we need to keep something constantly in our minds as we are about to embark on 12 chapters of this kind of destruction laid out for us in detail, chapter after chapter, explaining what God is going to do to planet Earth because of human sinfulness. We need to keep something in mind. In this present era in which we now live, this is the era of gospel grace. This is the time in which God is willing to be gracious to sinners and give them amnesty and welcome them back, forgiving all of their sins. In this era in which we live, we are commanded to love our enemies We're commanded to turn the other cheek, to cry out to God for the forgiveness of even the most bitter opponent of the gospel. Even those that are viciously persecuting us, even willing, as Paul was, to trade our own salvation that they might be saved. Many verses teach this. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, God says, in the time of my favor I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. That's the era we live in now. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. From the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And while they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
And as I mentioned, the Apostle Paul said concerning the, the unbelieving Jews that were persecuting him in every town and village that he went to. He went to the synagogue and would preach and for the most part they just rejected him and persecuted him. These were his consistent enemies, sworn enemies, some of whom even took fasts until they could assassinate him. This is what he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. All of these verses show us the proper attitude we should have right now toward the enemies of the gospel. In this present era of grace, when there's still time for sinners to repent and find forgiveness in Christ, no sinner is beyond redemption. No sins are too great for the grace of God, the ocean of God's grace to cover. And we are filled with hope as we preach the gospel in all of these settings. However, looming above all of these things that I've been saying for the last three or four minutes, we have this statement, very well known in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. A deep desire for vengeance, an outcry for justice is depicted in the book of Revelation and is right as well. We saw that in Revelation 6, 9 through 11 when the fifth seal was broken by Christ. We saw under the altar in heaven the souls of those who have been martyred for their faith in Christ. They go and take refuge at that heavenly altar and they cry out for vengeance. In heaven, they cry out for vengeance. And they're told to wait a while. They're not told that such a cry is inappropriate. They're just told to wait until the full number of the martyrs would come in. More on this in a moment. To some degree in this chapter, we're going to see the outpouring of God's wrath through the seven trumpets, the first four of the seven trumpets, and then after that, the seven bowls, the chapters that are going to follow in Revelation. We're going to see all of that as a direct answer to prayer. The prayers of the anguished people of God for justice against their enemies. And as the prayers ascend from these anguished hearts up to heaven, they are heard. And this is the response. The wrath of God is flung like a fireball to the surface of the earth in answer to prayer. So in this present era of the gospel, we are restrained from taking vengeance, for we are not God. It's not our place. Also because we know that we should also leave room for the grace of God. And we know that God's grace is able to transform anyone. The bitterest enemy can one in one day repent under the sovereign influence of the grace of God and become a precious brother or sister in Christ, just like Saul of Tarsus did. Woke up that morning breathing out murderous threats, dragging off people to prison, and that evening loving Christ, believing in him, and loving the brothers and sisters in Christ. No longer an enemy, but an eternal friend. We know that can happen at any point, and we are trusting and hoping. But God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And when the seven trumpets blow and the seven bowls are poured out on the surface of the earth, the wrath of God will be poured out with unremitting fury and literally millions, I would say literally billions of people, will die. And this is called in another place the strange work of God. 
the strange work. In Isaiah 28, 21, the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim and he will rouse himself as he did in the Valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. But we should not imagine that God is squeamish about this or embarrassed about it or he will in the end somehow feel ashamed of it. None of those things are true. He's telling us plainly what he will do. He's not hiding this. And he's going to do it in full view of all of his children. But as we go carefully through these upcoming chapters, don't be surprised if it all seems a bit too much for you. Like the circuit breaker kind of trips over. It's like, this is overwhelming, what's going to happen. Because it is. We are commanded to be gracious to our enemies, to believe in the power of the gospel to convert them, but we must not shrink back from this careful, meticulous display of the wrath of God that is coming on the earth. We need to understand it. And so, yes, it is true. When all is said and done, we are going to drink from a river of the water of life that will flow down through the center of the new Jerusalem from the throne of God. But before we experience that, there's going to be, based on Daniel 7, a river of fire flowing from that same throne. A river of fire, a river of water. And we need to embrace both because they're openly taught in Scripture. And in this chapter, it all begins with silence. Silence. Look at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Just by way of review, the seal that was broken was on a scroll that had been in the, in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, Almighty God, the ruler of the universe. And John was transported through a doorway and saw that throne, and in the right hand was a scroll. And Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain for our sins, came. He's the only one that had the right to take it, and he does have that right. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and he begins to open in Revelation 6 the seven seals. And he breaks open each of the seals and the first four seals unleash what's known commonly as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then I've already mentioned the fifth seal in which the martyrs are in heaven crying for vengeance. And then the sixth seal depicts in some way the beginning of the end of all of the physical universe. Every mountain and island removed. There's a massive earthquake and, and the stars fall from the, from the heavens. And, and everyone on earth is running and fleeing and looking for some refuge. And they're crying out saying to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, hide us and cover us. For the wrath, the great day of the wrath of Almighty God, the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb has come. And who shall be able to stand? And then we saw in Revelation 7, it seems an answer to that question. 144,000 sealed from all the tribes of the sons of of Israel. And then a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Standing before the throne in front of the Lamb wearing white robes, holding palm branches and saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They are able to stand in the great day of the wrath of God. But now we see depicted and unfolded for us in the subsequent chapters what that's going to be like. What is the great day of the wrath of God and what is it going to be like? And so it begins with this idea of silence. Silence in heaven. Now, what is the significance of this heavenly silence? Well, 
Heaven is ordinarily a place of ceaseless praise. It's a joyfully noisy place, actually. There's thunderous sounds of praise continually. Day and night, they never stop praising the one who sits on the throne. They never stop casting their crowns and crying out salvation belongs to God. And they're just celebrating all the time. But here at the beginning of the seven trumpets, we have this silence in heaven for half an hour. It's stunning. It's a very long time, too. If I were to stand here at this pulpit silent for five minutes, how long would it be before you'd start feeling really uncomfortable? Shall we try it? No, don't. (laughs) But this is a long time. Now, heaven is a timeless place. There's no sense of that. It's something that John would have felt as he was observing. It went on a long time. What did it signify? Well, other silences in Scripture happen in reference to God. They're even commanded by God in light of His eternal power and His divine nature and His plan as it moves forward. The, and the infinite gap between God the Creator and all the rest of everything which is creation or creature. Habakkuk 2.20 The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The whole earth is commanded to silence when God rouses himself to execute judgments on the earth. In Zechariah 2.13 it says, Be still before the Lord all mankind, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Silence also implies submission to God's judgments. That we can't answer him back. We couldn't answer back one charge in a thousand. It says in Romans 3.19. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Even Job, this godly man at the end. He says after encountering God in the world when he says I am unworthy. How can I reply? I put my hand over my mouth. Some see it as a very dramatic calm before the storm. That can be effective like in music, you know. There's a a big climax and then there's a pause and then a crescendo. That pause sets off the drama of what's about to come. Yet this is not an earthly silence. This is silence in heaven. The heavenly worshipers who are watching what's unfolding. They, They long to look into these things the angels are and they're interested in the unfolding plan of God they're, they're rendered silent for what's about to be unleashed on the earth verse 2 and I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets so these seem to be special angels all of the angels that serve God in heaven are holy they're all glorious But they're not all equally radiant or equally powerful. They don't all have equal positions. Star differs from star in glory. And so there are some beings called archangels, ruler angels. There are two named angels in the Bible, Michael and Gabriel. These might be seven special angels who have special access to the throne of God. So that's what it might mean, these seven angels who stand before God. To them are given seven trumpets. But first, another angel 
comes to connect, as I've already said, to link the wrath of God that we're going to see outpoured, not just in this chapter, but I mean for the rest of the book of Revelation, to link it to the intercessory prayers, the prayers that go up before God and have done, I think, for all 20 centuries of church history. Look at verses 3 through 5. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So we have depicted a heavenly altar. Moses was commanded in the Old Covenant to make a tabernacle with an altar. But it was just a type, a shadow of the heavenly reality. This is the heavenly reality. This is the heavenly tabernacle with a heavenly altar. The altar of Revelation 8.3 is the true altar in heaven. The Old Testament altar was just a type and a shadow of this reality. And this is the very place we already saw in Revelation 6 where the martyrs, when Christ breaks open the fifth seal, they go to the altar in heaven and they cry out at that altar for vengeance. And they're told to wait a little while until the full number of martyrs who were to die as they had was completed. That's the altar. And so this angel, different than the seven that are about to sound their trumpets, makes his appearance and he has in his hand a golden censer. So years ago when I was, I was raised Roman Catholic, I was an altar boy and they, uh, they use incense in some of the ceremonies in the Catholic Church. And so I assisted. And so I know what a censer is. I, I saw the priest have it. It's a, it's a metal container, like a metal box connected to a chain, at least it was that one that I saw, and there was a little door in the side, and they would put in these orange crystals of incense on these coals that were already burning inside the censer, and they would start to smoke, and the smoke was fragrant, it was, uh, it was aromatic. And then the priest would, would make the censer swing back and forth, and, and at, the, at the apex of its swing, puffs of smoke would come out. In this way, the, the whole place would be filled with the aroma of this incense. So that's what an incenser is. Now the text tells us that the angel offered up this, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of all the saints. So I think we need to understand the martyrs of Revelation, uh, the fifth seal of Revelation 6, should not, it shouldn't be narrowly considered as just tribulation martyrs, those that die in the future in the last seven years of history. But I would want to extend it over all of human history because there's a, a broadness to what it's discussing here in Revelation 8. All of those, all of the saints, all of their prayers going up before this altar. So not just that's the small number of the martyrs that are going to be killed during the Great Tribulation, but the totality of God's people who have cried out in every generation against their tormentors, crying out for justice, crying out for vengeance, not understanding why it seems God doesn't answer those prayers. And the fragrant smoke of these passionate prayers rises up before the throne of God, begging God to do something about these wicked opponents of the gospel, pleading with God to intervene. 
It reminds me of Jesus in the parable of the persistent widow. You remember this widow in the parable goes day after day to a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. It's got to be like the worst thing ever said about a judge in history. Breaking every day the two great commandments. But he gets sick of this widow. He keeps coming day after day and she's going to wear him out with her coming. And so he gives her what she wants. What does she want? Justice against her adversary. The widow represents the church. As we go to God pleading, and Jesus says this in Luke 18, 7 and 8. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So that's how he comments about the persistent widow. It has to do with crying out to God for justice, and he's going to see that they get justice and quickly. So I'm thinking about all the seemingly unanswered prayers that have risen to God's throne across 20 centuries of church history. So prayers that rose uh, in communist countries, like behind the Iron Curtain back in those days, or even now, uh, the communist countries now, for pastors that would be arrested and hauled away in the middle of the night, and prayers for their release and their protection, seemingly unanswered as the man was tortured and, and executed. Or prayers that rose for missionaries in dangerous jungles in Africa or South America. That they would be protected from the people they were trying to reach. But they would be seized by chieftains and boiled to death. Or headhunters or cannibals. These things happened. Prayers that rose for those captured by Islamic extremists. That they would be delivered. That they would be rescued. But instead they're beheaded. Prayers that rose for martyrs during the Roman era, back at the very beginning of the church. That they would be set free by their Roman captors, but they weren't. They were killed in the Colosseum or burned by Nero to light the garden for his dinner guests. What a wicked, evil man. And those prayers seemingly unanswered. Or even this specific one, prayers that rose for Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the final days of World War II. That he would be set free. He'd been arrested by the Nazis. And one of the final acts of the monster Adolf Hitler. Was a personally signed command to execute Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Just days before the end of the war in Europe. Those prayers seemingly unanswered. You say where's the justice? Why doesn't God hear our prayers? And the spirit of those blasphemous tyrants and persecutors will be distilled and and in a wicked way perfected in the Antichrist in the final form of human government, it's going to get much, much worse. And so it's going to be very, very acute, this cry for justice. And so the prayers of the saints rise continually before the throne of God and he hears every one of them. And the angel mixes the prayers of all the saints for justice and vengeance and fills the golden censer of with coals of fire from the altar, and he hurls it down on planet Earth. A very clear message, clear symbol of the connection between the wrath that we see in this chapter and the following ones, and the prayers of God's people for deliverance and for justice. And we may wonder, why doesn't God answer those prayers? It's because God, we're told in 2 Peter 3.9, is patient With us not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. There's a patience of God. But the very next verse 
2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, most of the opponents of the gospel, non-Christians don't vigorously, violently oppose the church. They don't have the energy or the concern to do it. They just don't care. And whenever the church might interact with them, they would resist with a snide comment or something like that. But they don't have the energy to kind of organize any kind of persecution. They're just against uh, the gospel. But there are some people in, in positions of government, key leaders in communities who have used their position of influence to do what they can to stop the spread of the gospel and to make life miserable for Christians. All over the world, this has happened. And those people, we know, are going to receive a personal judgment. They will stand personally before God. And it says in Romans 2, 5 and 6, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what they have done. So that's individual. But what we have here in the book of Revelation is an open public display of the justice of God. These, the private wrath that's poured out on individuals after they die, we don't see it. We believe it's happened. We believe that wicked men like Hitler and Stalin, the persecuted Christians, when they die, they are judged and are condemned in hell. We believe it, but we don't see it. There's no public vindication of the justice of God. Here it is, friends. This is the public vindication at the end of the world of God's justice. And so the angel takes a golden censer, fills it with coals, and hurls it to the earth. And the earth reacts with peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And now come the actions of God through the angel. Verse 6, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And we have, for the rest of the chapter, the first four trumpets. And these first four trumpets are interestingly, uh, the first three anyway, all judgments on the ecology of the earth. The ecology of the earth. The earth was entrusted to the human race as a stewardship. We were put here on the planet to serve the earth and see it come to its full fruition. Genesis chapter 2. But instead, man fell into sin, Adam ate the forbidden fruit, and the earth was cursed because of him. Genesis 3, 17, 18. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. As a result then of Adam's sin, the earth has been groaning under a curse in a bondage to decay, we're told in Romans 8, 21 and 22. Now, many people in our society, in our, in our world, are extremely concerned about the environment. Some are even fanatically committed to ecology and the careful balance of the ecosystems. This is in some sense right. There is a sense in which, without going over into idolatry, Christians should lead the way in this. We should say like to him, this is my father's world. This was entrusted to us by God. So we should be good stewards of the environment. But people talk a ton about global warming caused by the burning of fossil fuels, the destruction of the ozone layer. People are concerned about landfills, the effect they have on the groundwater, about fracking and its effect on the groundwater. People worry about air pollution, water pollution. You hear uh, stories about the destruction of the rainforest and what effect they're going to have on the future of the world. Others worry about the disposal of nuclear waste extinct and uh, extinction of specific species like the giant panda and uh, Sumatran tiger or the Javan rhino. They're worried about these. But nothing 
that man has ever done or ever could do to destroy planet earth and its ecosystems is anything compared to what God is going to do before the end of the world. God is going to rip it to shreds. I was just reading in Jeremiah 45 right before I came up here. God said, I'm about to destroy what I have planted. You think about that. He loves the earth and he loves the plants and the animals on it more than we can possibly imagine. And this is what he's going to do to it. The first trumpet, verse 7, the first angel sounded his trumpet and then there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. And this brings a powerful reminder of the plague that God brought on Egypt under Moses, the hail that pounded the lushly irrigated fields of that breadbasket of the ancient world, Egypt. But this plague also includes fire and blood. Now, hail, of course, is just precipitation that's turned to ice, the little granules of ice, and it happens when turbulence occurs and there's a heating and, and a big cycle, an engine, uh, in which these little tiny droplets freeze and then gain larger and larger layers of ice, like layers of the skin uh, of an onion, onion skins, layers. And they can get pretty big. I mean, it's common for, for them to be, you know, three-eighths of an inch in diameter up to half an inch, but they can get a lot bigger than that. And they bring terrible destruction on, on car roofs, on windows, on crops, especially standing grains like wheat and corn and soybeans. The largest in history was almost eight inches in diameter. Coming down from the clouds, comes down with the, with the force of a missile. But as I said, this hailstorm in the book of Revelation is no ordinary one. It's mixed with fire and blood. Perhaps the blood flows because of the injuries caused by massive falling rocks of ice. The hail alone would, would beat down all growing things. But the fire is zeroed in and it seems to do the real damage. The earth is burned up. A third of the trees are burned up. All of the green grass is burned up. I can't imagine the ecological effects of this. It's It's staggering. I mean, what's the largest forest fire in history? What percentage of the world's trees burned in that? 0.000 something percent. And you can imagine the smoke billowing for miles around that huge fire. But this is a third of, the, of all the trees on, on planet Earth. Now, again and again in this chapter... We see this one-third language, a third, a third, a third, a third, a third. It's actually hard to understand sometimes, but there is a sense, this repeated a third, one-third, one-third. What does it mean? You know what it means? It means God is holding himself back. It's not a full display of everything he could do. He leaves two-thirds, two-thirds, two-thirds. God said to Pharaoh in Exodus 9.15, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague so great it would have wiped you from the face of the earth. I think God's saying that to the final generation. I could do far worse than this. This is effectively your final warning. The second trumpet... A fiery mountain crashes into the sea. Look at verses 8 and 9. The second angel sounded his trumpet. And something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So just as it seems the earth is trying to recover from the staggering impact of the first trumpet. 
we have now this, something even worse, even more devastating. Something like a massive mountain, a big chunk of rock, huge, all on fire, comes hurtling down and all the way, again and again, it's from heaven to earth, heaven to earth, it's always from up, down, it's coming down. And so this thing comes down, this maybe a massive meteorite or some kind of asteroid. It comes through the Earth's protective shield, through the atmosphere, and ignites, perhaps. And it lands in the ocean with such massive force, a force greater than a nuclear bomb. The real issue here is not just the massive burning mountain, but the effect it's going to have on the seas and oceans and therefore on planet Earth. God created the oceans... To be a continual source of blessing to mankind. There's a continual cycle of evaporation. And the oceans supply the, uh, the earth with the overwhelming majority of its rainwater. Through that cycle of evaporation, condensation, and precipitation. Also, much of the earth's oxygen comes from the phytoplankton and the algae that grow abundantly in the oceans. As a matter of fact... 28% of the oxygen in the world comes from rainforests, but 70% comes from marine plants. So actually, these first two trumpets are a direct attack on the air that we breathe. These are what generate the air that we breathe. Beyond this, the text says a third of the sea was turned to blood, perhaps from the death of a third of all living creatures in the sea. You think about all the ecologists in Greenpeace doing whatever they can to protect marine life to save the whales. And yet in one moment, in a cataclysm, we can hardly imagine a third of all whales and squid and sharks and mackerels and orcas and porpoises and schools of tropical fish, a third of all of the living creatures in the sea perish. The text also says a third of all the ships were destroyed. We can imagine that would come just from the massive waves that would come when this mountain plows into the ocean and at that point aircraft carriers container ships huge oil tankers nothing can withstand the force of these waves and a third of the shipping is taken out and this is going to cause widespread economic chaos can't even imagine what would happen if a third of shipping were destroyed or all of these things are occurring and and all of the life in the a third of the life in the oceans are killed And yet God is still restraining himself, one-third. The earth will recover somewhat and life will seek to return to normal, but it will be a radically new normal. But then the third trumpet comes, a falling star that pollutes the fresh water. Look at verses 10 and 11. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing, blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and a third of the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter. And many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Again, we've got that falling image from heaven to earth. This time it's something like a large star. Again, a meteorite perhaps. Or perhaps something that has no name. Something that we've never seen before. Like a blazing torch falling from heaven to earth. To bring judgment from God. But this time the judgment's on fresh water. Which we absolutely must have in order to survive. And the rivers and the ponds and the lakes, a third of them are turned bitter. They're poisoned by wormwood. The Greek is absinthos. It's a a bitter substance. Not usually poisonous, but in this case it will be poisonous because people, many people who try to drink the the, uh, poisoned waters will die from what they drank. 
It's hard for us to imagine ahead of time what these uh, plagues are going to do to the human race, the level of social upheaval. I was talking to my uh, daughters this morning about it. I was saying, can you imagine if a third of the population of the earth had no fresh water, but other parts of the world did have fresh water? Can you imagine mass migrations trying to seek the water? Can you imagine the chaos? The violence that would happen at that particular point? And you, could, you can imagine the governments trying to get together to solve this. What are we going to do? It's going to be incredibly difficult. And yet despite the sufferings and some deaths of people that drink this water, these deaths more seem to be an indirect effect of these judgments. The direct attack on human beings will happen in the next chapter. We'll see that in Revelation 9, God willing, next week. The fourth trumpet, a third of the heavenly lights are extinguished. Look at verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. Now the first three trumpet blasts all strike, as I said, the ecology of the earth. This one, however, goes up into the heavenly realms. It affects the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now they were not entrusted to our stewardship. We're not lord or king over the sun, moon, and stars as we were entrusted under God to be kings and queens over planet earth. But yet, the sun, the moon, and stars, we're told in Genesis 1, were created to give light to the earth and to mark seasons and days and years. They have an earthbound purpose. And when the events on earth reach their climax and their conclusion, the heavenly beings are going to be affected. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, I don't really fully get it, what this means. A third of the sun was struck. And a third of the moon. I don't know if it's like a dimmer switch where the light goes down a certain amount. Maybe that's how we see it. I can't fully explain it. Afterward, one of you will be an expert in this and come tell me what you think. And that'll be an interesting discussion. I'm just going to say, as I've said many times before, I don't know, I don't know, and I don't know when it comes to details. But I do know that the light will in some sense be reduced from the sun, the moon, and the stars. And will be terrifying to the people on earth. Absolutely terrifying. And this is reported again and again in the book, in the prophets. Predicted that the celestial beings are going to be affected. It, it happens in so many prophetic places that this is not just some metaphor, some symbol. This is actually going to happen. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Listen, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, you hear those words, and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. And then this, Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8. When I snuff you out, what a striking phrase, phrase that is. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the sovereign Lord. Jesus Christ himself spoke of these heavenly signs. In Luke 21, 25 and 26, he said, listen to this. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth... Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Jesus is talking about the psychological reaction that people will have when these things start to happen. They're they're not going to have any idea what to think about this or what to do. And Joel said it as well, very plainly, in Joel 2, verses 30 through 32. In the last days, I will show wonders in the heavens 
and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now you meditate on that and you can see when these judgments start coming on the earth, some of God's elect will cross over from darkness to light. They will repent. And you can see, therefore, the grace of God. And you, you marvel, like, did it take that to convert, convert them? Apparently it did. But you, you can see, even in the midst of all of this suffering, the grace and mercy of God in the middle of it. Verse 13 is the warning of woes yet to come. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. This is mind-blowing. A speaking eagle in mid-flight. One of the few talking animals in the Bible. For all of you C.S. Lewis fans who have, has lots of talking animals in his stories. But here is this speaking eagle in mid-flight. But what a terrifying message it's entrusted with. Woe, woe, woe. A word of prophetic warning. What you have just experienced, what you are experiencing, is nothing compared to what is about to be unleashed on you. And we'll get to that, God willing, next week in Revelation 9. The most terrifying thing that God's ever done on planet Earth depicted in Revelation 9. Applications. Well, first and foremost, you're going to go out in a few moments and it's going to look normal to you. You're going to look around, you'll see the sun shining, you'll see the clouds, you'll hear the birds, you'll look at the green grass, maybe with new eyes, realizing how temporary it is. You'll look at every tree in the same way. But it'll look normal. And you'll, and you'll have to believe by faith that the things I've talked about today are coming in the future. And I'm going to say this especially to you that, and I pray that God would bring some here today that are as yet unconverted, that you would be warned and flee to Christ while you still have time. This is a narrow window of opportunity. This is the day of God's salvation. This is a time of his grace before he starts unleashing these things. So flee to Christ. God sent his son born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life. He did great signs and wonders to show his compassion and care for people, but also to show that he's God. But he came especially to die in our place on the cross as a substitute, to drink in the wrath of God on the cross for us so we don't have to experience it. And he died a bloody death that we might have forgiveness of sins. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. And if you trust in him, apart from any good works, just by simple faith, all of your sins will be forgiven. And you'll be able to stand on the day of judgment. So I'm pleading with you. As you listen to this warning, flee to Christ while there's time. And for you who are Christians, take seriously that this is going to happen. Your non-Christian co-workers and family members, they're not thinking about this. They don't think that it's going to happen. Our... Our job is to take this message of the gospel and the warnings that are in it and spread them to people who don't believe yet. And you may say, Pastor, that's going to make me look really weird. Look, just put it on me. Say, you wouldn't believe what we heard yesterday in, in this sermon. And what do you think about this? It's said in Revelation 8, and the pastor seems to think it's actually really going to happen. And so do I. It's like, and start and have a conversation around the coffee pot. They got about three minutes 
for break, they'll be going back to their cubicles, thinking about blood and fire and billows of smoke. But it's coming, and it's our job to warn them. Also, see the connection between human sin and ecological disaster. I mean, we were put in charge of this planet, and look what God is going to do to his beautiful planet because of us, because of our human sin. There are two great displays of it. The cross of Christ. Look what he did to his only begotten son. That's how much he hates sin. And now as we read in this, look what he's going to do to this beautiful world that he made. That's how much he hates sin. And as we are messengers of this, we have to be like Noah in the days when the ark was being built. And people came and asked him what was going on. And Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. But we're told in 2 Peter 3, in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Everything goes on as it always has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago the world was destroyed by a flood. And they don't know that the future world has been reserved for fire and it's coming. Our job is to be like Noah, preachers of righteousness and warn people of what's coming. Also, the call is on us to live a holy life in light of these things. It is because of these sins that we commit ourselves that the wrath of God is coming. Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self and have been made new in the image of Christ. We are told in detail what sins are bringing the judgment that is coming. We must put those sins to death. Don't walk in the sins that are going to bring this kind of judgment on the earth. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the warnings that you give us in Scripture. The book of Revelation is filled with detailed warnings of what you will bring in the future on planet Earth. And it's more terrifying, more dreadful than anything we can imagine. We read about it, but our souls recoil. But Lord, we don't do so in a way that we don't trust you. We know that you are a loving God. We know that you are powerful. We know that you are holy. We know that you are working out a plan of salvation. Oh God, thank you for Jesus Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that you have rescued us from darkness and brought us into light. And now, Lord, empower us. Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on this church and make us messengers so that we see more and more baptisms, just like we saw earlier today, of people that have been rescued from the coming wrath. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.